Okay, for the sake of time, I think we should get going, even though there may still be some people coming in. Uh, let's just bow to begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to spend this time reviewing our history, especially from the viewpoint of soul winning, how to win people's hearts and souls for your kingdom. Give us wisdom as we look, as we ponder the records of the past. May we see the sacredness that there is in history because you are there. You've been guiding, you've been directing. Teach us how to follow, teach us how to learn, teach us better how to duplicate your methods of reaching hearts by our study today. In Christ's name, amen. Our title today is Finishing Strong by Remembering the Past. Uh, what I'm doing today is just sharing a few thoughts, stories, ideas from my own personal look at the past in the opportunity I've had to look at Adventist history. History is amazingly detailed. It's amazingly complex. Um, no one sees it all, only the books of heaven record it all. Someday we'll be able to open those books and we will have all the pieces of the puzzle and uh, we'll see things probably that will amaze us. But we do have an amazing amount of history and we do have the privilege of, uh, especially in our day, of having pieces of the puzzle to put together to teach us. Uh, the organization I represent is Adventist Pioneer Library. The website I've given you uh, there on the screen, aplib.org. We do have an exhibit as well in the exhibit hall, uh, Exhibit 108. How early Seventh-day Adventist efforts teach valuable lessons for soul winning today. And obviously the past that we're looking at is the early part of our Seventh-day Adventist history. For us, we have to go back some 170 years. But interestingly enough, about 120 years ago, Ellen White was doing something similar because at that point they had already been into the work for some 50 years. And here's one of the statements that you can find in her writings. During the past 50 years of my life, I have had precious opportunities to obtain an experience. Let me interject. We all need an experience. Uh, you cannot give what you do not have. Soul winning is giving. Soul winning is giving people a testimony, a witness. Um, and so she continues, I have had experience in the first, second, and third angel's messages. The angels are represented as flying in the midst of heaven, proclaiming to the world a message of warning and having a direct bearing upon the people living in the last days of this earth's history. Men and women, enlightened by the Spirit of God and sanctified through the truth. We heard a little bit about that in the early morning devotional, if you were there this morning, the importance of that witness, sanctified through the truth. She says, they proclaim the three messages in their order. I have acted a part in this solemn work. She's giving her own testimony. I have acted a part. Nearly all my Christian experience is interwoven with it. There are those now living who have had an experience similar to my own. They have recognized the truth unfolding for this time. They have kept in step with the great leader, the captain of the Lord's host. And of course we know who that is. That's Jesus Christ. And we follow him in what he's doing. 
We cooperate with them. That's from Second Selected Messages, page 387. She wrote that in 1890. 1890, go back 50 years from 1890, where are you? 1840, she was a teenager. Her family were Millerites. They were looking forward to Christ's coming, uh, studying the messages, studying the prophecies. She had not even thought about the Sabbath. She had not even thought about the sanctuary. She was struggling, as we'll see, with her own Christian experience at a very basic level. Another statement, a couple years later, in reviewing our past history, having traveled over every step of advance to our present standing, I can say, praise God. As I see what the Lord has wrought, I am filled with astonishment and with confidence in Christ as leader. We have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us in his teaching in our past history. Life Sketches 196, written in 1892 for the first time. So before we actually dive into some of the concepts and stories, uh, we just need to re-emphasize the fact that we do have today amazing resources that she did not have in the 1890s. Here's what she says about her writings. Abundant light has been given to our people in these last days. Whether or not my life is spared, and obviously after 1915, the answer was clear. She was not going to live to see Christ come. Whether or not my life is spared, my writings will constantly speak, and their work will go forward as long as time shall last. My writings are kept on file in the office. Now, that was in the day of paper, right? And we still have paper files in the office of her writings. But now, what else do we have? She says, even though I should not live, these words that have been given me by the Lord should, will still have life and will speak to the people. Volume 1, Selected Messages, page 55. She wrote that in 1907, some eight years before she died. She also stated this a few years before that. We are to repeat the words of the pioneers in our work, who knew what it cost to search for, for the truth as for hidden treasure, and who labored to lay the foundation of our work. They moved forward, step by step, under the influence of the Spirit of God. Let that which these men have written in the past be reproduced. Let the truths that are the foundation of our faith be kept before the people. The truths that have made us as a people what we are. Leading us on, step by step. Review in Herald, May 25, 1905. So, what are these resources? Well, I would say this CD-ROM, which came out in the early part of 19, uh, 2009, the L. G. White Writings Comprehensive Research Edition, is probably the first time those two statements have actually been put together, literally. Because on the CD-ROM are what she called my writings, and also what she called the words of the pioneers. There it is, on one collection, an amazing library, every word indexed. You can search for words, you can search for phrases. Uh, in the pioneer section, you can actually search for uh, dates 
what did they write this year? And unfortunately, the White Estate has not yet date stamped all of their paragraphs, but eventually I'm sure that will be done. So what are we also available to see today? Things like this. Maybe you don't even know about this. Ellen, egwwritings.org, the new website for the Ellen White Writings. And I would encourage you to go there. There's too much there to describe right now. But EGW Writings, there's two W's when you put EGW and Writings next to each other, so make sure both the W's are there, .org. There are the entire contents of the major collections on that CD-ROM on, online. You can search them. You can browse. You can read. And that's the little globe there that looks like uh, the world with EGW written on it. The one right below that, that shows the globe with the book open, they're individual books. And if you go to the individual books, it will tell you, is that book available in audio? Someone can read it to me? If it is, you can download that free. Is it available in PDF? If it is, it's right there, you can download it free. Is it available in EPUB, which works on the iPad? Or is it available in Kindle? If it's there, you can download that free. So it's an amazing resource, resource that you need to be aware of. What about this one? Has anyone seen this one? E.G. Ellen G. White Writings, Complete Published Writings. This is for the iPad and iPhone, what they call the iOS application, free, downloadable off the iTunes store. How many of you saw this one? Did you get a registration packet for ASI? It's in there. It says, share this CD. As of this release, they're wanting you to take this and load it onto everybody's computer that you can find that has any interest in the writings. Not copyrighted, share this CD. Okay, so that's there as well. And these three are all free. The online ones and the one that you were given here. The CD-ROM, Comprehensive Research Edition, uh, if you can fill your tank with gas these days, you could probably buy two of these CDs. It's that inexpensive. Okay. ABCs carry it. We have it uh, at our exhibit. It's available also at other retailers as well. So as we look at these resources that we have, I think God's going to be able to say at some point, what else could I have done? I've made it very easy for you. There's no excuse. Uh, it's there available, the resources, looking, finding those pieces of the puzzle to put together to make sense out of our history, to learn from the past, both the successes of the past and the failures. And I say failures um, not because we want to focus only on the failures, by, by no means. But as 1 Corinthians 10 says, these things were written for our admonition that we should not do this and do this and do this. Read 1 Corinthians 10. It gives a list of the failures of the people of biblical history. Why? Not to focus on that, but to let us know that human nature hasn't changed. And we need to learn, we need to learn that. The fact that we're still here tells us that we must learn not only the good lessons from the past, but also the mistakes from the past as well. The paradigm that I'm going to be operating from in what I'm presenting today is a paradigm that I call the complete framework for the reality that we're in based on Scripture. Um, and that, unless we take the Word of God, 
we do not really understand the world we live in, what life is about, you know, what's, what's in the past, what's in the future. The Bible gives us that framework. And that's going to be the framework that I'm operating from, obviously. Uh, I'm going to give just a brief summary view of my picture of that, of that paradigm. Then I want to focus, too, based on our history, on what I call the dynamic. How God has designed things to function. And how He is restoring things to that design. In other words, there's been a big interruption in His plan. It's called the Great Controversy. And there's been a lot of, um, a lot of consequences to that that God never intended. But he actually is going to turn that into something amazingly wonderful as well. We can already see evidences for that. And so I'm going to give you some stories, hopefully from our past, that will show that dynamic, uh, how God has designed things to function. Our identity and mission as a movement, I believe, is distilled with this phrase that the Bible calls the truth. The great controversy is the setting that we look at it in, and the the truth of God, the truth of God himself, has been attacked by what Jesus himself called the lie. That we know that the devil fathered. John 8, verse 44, it's the truth about God, the truth about the Father. The law of life for the universe, as Ellen White describes it in Desire of Ages, page 21. And she elsewhere describes it as the principle, the principle, singular, of God's kingdom. Education, page 154 also mentioned on education page 190. But what about something that, that we often hear about for our day, the present truth? I believe that is the truth applied to our location in salvation history. And that's a parallel to Christ's own disciples because this phrase, the present truth, is a phrase that Peter used in his second epistle, 2 Peter 1 verse 12. And it's what Ellen White describes hundreds of times. If you look at the CD-ROM over and over and over again, the phrase, the truth, for this time, the truth for this time. It's still the truth. And the truth is something singular. We can distill it down to something very singular. I believe it is the law of life of the universe. This principle that, that we're told is self-sacrificing love. It is, but what does it look like for our day? What does it look like as we understand its implication and application to where we are in the great controversy? Evangelism 229, she uses that phrase as she does many, many other places. What's the prophetic setting of where we are? The prophetic setting as Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists, we should be fairly familiar with these. We're under the fourth kingdom of Daniel 7. You recall in Daniel 7 there's no fifth kingdom of this earth. The kingdom after the fourth kingdom is God's everlasting kingdom. So that means we're still under the fourth kingdom. We're in the final phase of the fourth kingdom. And Revelation tells us very clearly that in that phase of the fourth kingdom, there's this developing threefold union. Revelation's language, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And we have to unwrap those at some point and understand what those prophetic symbols mean. That's not our, that's not our job here. But we're also in the time of transition between the fourth kingdom and God's everlasting kingdom. And that means God has begun a process based on the prophetic timetable of transitioning from the earth's kingdoms to God's kingdom. It's not a point, it's a process. It began based on the time prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. The judgment has started and God has raised up the Advent movement in a miraculous way 
to be involved with the first part of that transition. The sanctuary setting is basically, as we heard also in our, in our devotional early this morning, the sanctuary setting shows us that we're in the antitypical day of atonement. That Christ has moved his focus of ministry into the most holy place. And all that that symbolism un, un, unwraps for us in the Jewish type. What is the most holy place phase of his ministry? Study it. Dig into it. Search the writings for it. Ask God to lead you by faith to follow Christ there. There we find a special application of the blood of Christ from the courtyard. Remember the symbols? From the courtyard. Calvary sacrifice. But we find it now in the context of the law of God, which is where the tables were there in that ark. But it's underneath the solid gold lid, which they called the mercy seat. Solid gold in scripture is faith and love. Who's the source of faith and love? It's not us. We're the sinners in need of salvation. It's God's faith and love. The gold mercy seat there. And then we find the picture of final intercession, the incense that's going up there. And what, what does that mean, that Christ, the work that Christ is doing there? So again, the Advent movement was miraculously raised up by God on the timetable of the prophecies to do a work with him in this first phase of the transition, the most holy place phase of the sanctuary. And perhaps uh, from our past, one of the best records of how this was raised up is the book, The Great Second Advent Movement. J.N. Loughborough wrote it, the only pioneer that wrote a history of the movement. Ellen White basically told him, you need to tell what you have seen. The first uh, way he wrote it was entitled The Rise and Progress of Seventh-day Adventists. That book burned when the Review and Herald Publishing House burned. And the plates burned. And when you burn in those days the plates, you can't print any more books. So he revised it, called it The Great Second Advent Movement. And that book is available too. Here's what she said about his account. Elder Loughborough's book should receive attention. Our leading men should see what can be done for the circulation of this book. Councils to Writers and Editors, page 145. Uh, it's, again, the only eyewitness account of a Seventh-day Adventist talking about the raising up of the movement in the 1840s in those early years there. There's many parallels that we need to see as well as we look at, at the Advent movement. Since it's the Advent movement, it's focused on what event? The second coming of Christ. I believe it's similar to the role that Jeremiah and Josh, uh, Josiah had just before the fall of Jerusalem. Read those chapters in 2 Chronicles. Read the book of Jeremiah. Amazing account. What do you do just before the fall of something? I believe that's where we are. It's like the role of Daniel in Babylon just before Babylon's fall. After all, the falling of Babylon in Revelation, where it's its historical roots of that phrase, the fall of Babylon. It's Daniel chapter 5. We call it Belshazzar's feast, but it's really the fall of Babylon. What did Daniel do then? Our role is similar to Daniel's role. I think it's similar to the role of John the Baptist, who just before Messiah came, he prepared his way, right? An advent movement of one man and those who came to hear him, the first advent of Christ. But then there was another fall, and that was the fall of Jerusalem the second time. And amazingly enough, we can learn lessons from Jesus and his own disciples who were working there in the New Testament times just prior to the fall of Jerusalem the second time. And again, those are parallels that have much to teach us as to what our role is as the Advent movement because we are now just before the fall. As Revelation says of Babylon, 
But here it's just another name for the fourth kingdom. It's this global system that is still developing, that all the world is banking on, that all the world is, is thinking will succeed, and we're actually raised up to call people out of it, to call people to, to, to build on, this, on the rock and not on the sand. And God help us to understand how to do that properly. One way that I have found uh, useful to summarize Adventist history is to describe three interwoven threads. And I'll just go through these briefly. I don't have time to develop them. There is a publication that does that for you. The first thread is what Ellen White called the landmarks. And uh, these, um, the statements where these are from are documented in the reference I'm going to give you. But I see seven in the, in the paragraph that she lists. Um, she doesn't number them. But those would be the seven, second coming, sanctuary, three angels' messages, the commandments of God, the faith of Jesus, the Sabbath, and the non-immortality of the wicked. Then another thread are these messages, which we can see sort of flowing out of that one landmark called the three messages. And the messages are first angel's message, second angel's message, midnight cry. If you follow the history of Adventism, this is the order in which they came. First angel, second angel, midnight cry. Then came the passing of the time. October 1844. And it was after that the third angel's message came. Then the Laodicean message the next decade. And then some 30 years later, the angel told her, this is the beginning of the loud cry. The other thread I see we, we woven in to make up what Adventism is all about, all about is the ministries that, that God has led us to raise up. For what purpose? To carry the messages to teach the landmark truths. That's the only purposes for the ministries. These are not businesses as such. Uh, they must be run on good principles of business. Otherwise, you can't keep running things that don't succeed. But the only purpose they have is to convey the messages and to teach the landmark truths. And to start out with, um, I see meetings. They were involved with all types of meetings. Uh, publishing, they eventually had to organize and then they got involved with health because they were so sick, none of them could work. Uh, they're having strokes and all other types of things. And then their kids started growing up. And what are we going to do with the kids, you know? They've gone through the elementary schools. How can we train our children to carry the messages? And then God said, start schools. Start schools. Um, lest we forget the periodical that we published, volume 11, number one, I cover these three threads in an article, and you can find the sources for where we got those. This is what the um, periodical looks like. Um, a second look at the Adventist pioneers. What we'll be looking at today is what we listed here as, as meetings. Now, meetings are not typically what we think about simply as what we're having today or even the big venues where we get hundreds or thousands of people together for evangelism. I believe meetings are public evangelism plus private evangelism. Small groups, one-to-one -one encounters, whether it's planned or unplanned, those are meetings. Meetings that God arranges. Because um, you're meeting people. And this is exactly how God wants the messages carried through these meetings. We will consider some of the stories that illustrate that. We will also look at publishing. I don't think you appreciate how much they published in the years of the Millerite movement. There were periodicals all over North America. After all, they had no telephone, they had no telegraph, they had no radio, they had no television. How do you communicate a message that you're studying, that you're hearing about? They started publishing periodicals in towns and just mailing them everywhere. 
That's how they had to get the word out if, if they didn't actually come to a meeting itself. Publishing, publishing, but little by little, the publishing ventures stopped printing anything that had to do with the Sabbath or the sanctuary. And so their voices were cut off. So that's when Ellen White had a vision. Tell your husband to start printing his own. 1848, she had the vision. 1849, James, White's, James White starts publishing. 1849, very significant year. Not just in the gold rush that happened here a few miles away in California, but the gold that started flowing through the printed page in Adventism. And then, of course, they had to organize. Who's going to own the things? Who's going to keep the things going? And they ended up organizing. We'll look a little bit of, of some stories from organization. Um, interestingly enough, um, how that can be used in soul winning. And then, even though I'm a physician, I'm going to jump over the next ministry, and we're going to go down to education. There's a lot we could say about medical missionary work. And that is, indeed, the right arm of the message. But that's not what I'm going to focus on today. And we're going to talk a little bit about the principle that I want to focus on in education and soul winning. Well, the, that's sort of the paradigm of Adventist history. But the dynamic that I want to, to shine a bright light on for you today, which may be as new to you as it, is, as it was to me when I first stumbled onto it, is one of these landmarks. The landmark that Ellen White actually said had been neglected. It's the landmark that's there at the climax of the third angel's message. It is the crescendo of the third angel's message. John sees a people who endure. They endure to the end. Okay? They stand. But they stand because they keep two things. They keep two things, both of which are gifts of God to them. And they keep the commandments of God and what else? The faith of Jesus. Let's see what we can learn about that. It's a topic that we don't have time to look at at length, but perhaps a window into some of it. Ellen White's own experiences, some are recorded for us in the book Evangelism. There's an entire section of how she did soul winning. If you haven't read that sometime, read it through, pages 447 to 455, how Ellen White did soul winning. And we'll look at some of her counsels to others as well. This is a summary of what we're going to look at now in the stories and the principles. Number one, those that were under conviction, seeking God's approval. And this was Ellen White herself, as a teenage girl. What did she find? How, how, how was her soul one to God? Number two, those with no religious interest, or the merely curious ones. These were Ellen White's friends that she describes. Number three, those who rendered kindness. And this was a stranger that she providentially was led to in some of her travels. Number four, those who had slipped away from God, her son, Edson. Number five, those in high positions but unconverted. General conference men? My, my, what can our history teach us? Number six, those struggling with growing up. Know anybody like that? Students, okay? Young people in schools that are still trying to find themselves, figure out what life's all about. Um, how do you deal with them? And number seven, those who are resisting the light of present truth. And we look at the case of a man by the name of John Radley. Anybody ever heard of John Radley? Um, interesting story from our past. Let's start with Ellen White. 
In her teen years, this is how she describes her experience. I believe that Christ was soon to come and feared that he would find me unprepared to meet him. Words of condemnation rang in my ears day and night. And my constant cry to God was, what shall I do to be saved? This is in Life Sketches 29 and following. What I'm going to do is I put these stories up on the slides. I'm going to be developing sort of a little pattern here. I'm going to be sort of highlighting what she lists as the needs of the souls that she's talking about. Needs either that need to be resolved and removed or needs that need to be answered in some, some aspect. And then I'm going to highlight as well what she, what she specifies in the passage itself as the solution for that soul. What, what won that soul in that situation? So here, she obviously, the need, her need was what? She feared this condemnation thing. She had this sense of conviction. Teenage girl, early teens, just under this deep sense of, of condemnation. She says, in my mind, the justice of God eclipsed his mercy and love. The mental anguish I passed through at, time, at this time was very great. I had been taught to believe in an eternally burning hell. And as I thought of the wretched state of the sinner without God, without hope, I was in deep despair. I feared that I should be lost and that I should live throughout eternity suffering a living death. So again, what was the need? Justice only, right? Is there justice with God? Of course there is. God's kingdom would be threatened. His government would be in jeopardy if there was not justice. She had this mental anguish that she was going through and this deep despair. And obviously, she said that the justice was there without what? The mercy and love. She's beginning to give you just a little glimpses from the past, her own past, of, of looking back to see what was missing. Our Heavenly Father was presented before my mind as a tyrant who delighted in the agonies of the condemned, not as the tender, pitying friend of sinners who loves his creatures with a love past all understanding and desires them to be saved in his kingdom. So her need was this, was, was this horrendous picture of God, that God is a tyrant. And he was not seen as the tender, pitying friend and a love beyond all understanding that desires people to be saved. I would suggest we need to be highlighting those things that she is listing here as the solutions to her own problems. How did it work out with her? I frequently remained bowed in prayer nearly all night, groaning and trembling with inexpressible anguish. How many of you know of teenagers that do this? This is a unique, almost singular experience. Um, God was preparing her for something, okay? God was preparing her for something. But perhaps our teenagers could be more in tune with this if situations were different. She says she also had a hopelessness that passes all description. Lord, have mercy was my plea, and like the poor publican, I dare not lift my eyes to heaven, but bowed my face upon the floor. I became very much reduced in flesh and strength. What does that mean? She lost weight. She probably wasn't eating. Her anguish was, it was so terrible that she was having physical consequences. And yet, she said, I kept my suffering and despair to myself. 
So here we see anguish, hopelessness, suffering, and despair with, in that paragraph, no answer. But then she says, God gave her two impressive dreams. This was before her first vision. She's a teenage girl. She's having dreams. In the last dream, she, she's, it's all recorded there. You can read both dreams, amazing dreams. But in this last dream, let's focus on this part. My guide handed me a green cord coiled up closely. This he directed me to place next to my heart, and when I wished to see Jesus, take it from my bosom and stretch it to the utmost. He cautioned me not to let it remain coiled for any length of time, lest it should become knotted and difficult to strengthen to straighten. This dream gave me hope. The green cord represented faith to my mind. And the beauty and simplicity of trusting in God began to dawn upon my soul. What a beautiful picture. Obviously, she's seeing there something that is beginning to answer the need of her heart. Faith and trusting in God. And what what this is all about. And she says the simplicity of that, right? It doesn't have to be complicated. Winning souls does not have to be complicated. What meets the needs of souls is simple. It's simple. I now confided all my sorrows and perplexities to my mother. She tenderly sympathized with, my, with and encouraged me, advising me to go for counsel to Elder Stockman, who then preached the Advent Doctrine in Portland, it's Portland, Maine, I had great confidence in him, for he was a devoted servant of Christ. We're continuing in life sketches. We're down, now down to page 36 on her account here. Obviously, I see here a statement where she has someone else that she has confidence in. Confidence is just another word for faith. How important is, that, how important is it for someone to be able to have faith in you? Okay? We'll try to explore this a bit. During the few minutes in which I received instructions from Elder Stockman, I obtained more knowledge on the subject of God's love and pitying tenderness than from all the sermons and exhortations to which I had ever listened. I would have loved to have heard exactly what he told her. She describes it to some degree. But that, I say, would be an amazing story of soul winning. Knowing what, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, this young heart needs to understand, to meet her need at that time. And so, may God teach us to know how to describe to others God's love and pitying tenderness. My heart, she says, was so thankful to God for the blessing He had given me that I longed to have others participate in the sacred joy. My heart was deeply interested for those who might be suffering under a sense of the Lord's displeasure and the burden of sin. While relating my experience, I felt that no one could resist the evidence of God's pardoning love that had wrought so wonderful a change in me. This is Ellen White's own soul being saved, being one to God. And so this displeasure that she had been sensing of the Lord's, uh, and that is the burden of sin. She found an answer for that in this sacred joy, God's pardoning love that the sinner definitely frequently needs to hear about. Now we turn from Ellen White herself to her friends, because as soon as you have something from God, there is born within your heart a desire to give it to someone else. If it's genuine with you, you will not want to keep it 
So she says, I arranged meetings with my friends. Remember we talked about the ministry of meetings? Here's an example of the meetings we were talking about. This is no elaborate evangelistic meeting. What is she doing? She's telling her friends, I want to get together with you. When can we meet? Okay. I arranged meetings with my young friends, some of whom were considerably older than myself, okay, and few were even married. Here's a teenage girl saying to her married friends, let's have a meeting. I want to talk to you. A number of them were vain and thoughtless. She's not just picking out the religiously inclined. My experience sounded to them like an idle tale. What in the world is she talking about? Nights of mental anguish, you know, praying to the Lord. These people had, had, had never even thought of those types of things, apparently. But watch what she says. My experience sounded to them like an idle tale, and they did not heed my entreaties. But I determined that my efforts should never cease till these, till these dear souls, for whom I had so great an interest, yielded to God. So who's she working with? The vain and the thoughtless. Those who thought her experience was an idle tale, but she's sharing her experience. What can they say about her experience? They haven't had it. But she shared it in such a way that they knew that she had had it. She called them dear souls, and her efforts, she said, never ceased. Several entire nights were spent by me in earnest prayer for those whom I, whom I had sought out and brought together for the purpose of laboring and praying with them. Do we spend nights praying for the souls that God places on our heart? Do we love souls as Christ loves souls? I would say if we had more of that, then we would understand better how to win souls. Some of these, she said, had met with us from curiosity to hear what I had to say. Others thought me beside myself to be so persistent in my efforts, especially when they manifested no concern on their own part. But at every one of these, our little meetings, it wasn't just one meeting, you notice. She doesn't say how many times they met. She said, I continued to exhort and pray for each one separately until every one had yielded to Jesus. What an amazing story. Acknowledging the merits of his pardoning love, there it is again, his pardoning love, every one was converted to God. The persistence of a teenage girl who had something to share and shared it in a way that was persistent kind, sensitive, personal. Everyone yielded. Amazing story. Even though they thought she was beside herself, they had no concern. Her persistence and her picture of God's pardoning love obviously won them. She says, those older and experienced than myself endeavored to hold me back. You ever run into that? The older people try to hold the young people back um, because, you know, whatever reason, to cool the ardor of my faith. But with the smiles of Jesus brightening my life and the love of God in my heart, I went on my way with a joyful spirit. Amen. What a soul winner. Okay. Even though she was encountering this, this holding back, this people who were wanting to cool her ardor, her faith did not give up. The love of God was in her heart and she had a joyful spirit. And it had fruit. Souls were one to God. What an amazing picture. Let's turn next to a, a story probably some 15 years later or so. She's now a married woman. She and James are traveling through, through Michigan. In her own words, she says they were on their way to hold meetings in Virginia, Michigan. We were 15 miles from our destination. 
our driver, again, in these days in roads, they were traveling around by horse and buggy, I would imagine, or wagon. Our driver had passed over the road repeatedly and was well acquainted with it, but was compelled to acknowledge that he had lost the way. No road signs, no paved roads, you know. Imagine Michigan in 1854. We traveled 40 miles. How far was their destination when they started? 15 miles. They traveled 40 miles that day through the woods, over logs and fallen trees where there was scarcely a trace of a road. I was feeble and fainted twice on the way. We had no food. My husband prayed for me that I might be sustained on that dreary journey. We could not understand why we should be left to this singular wandering in the wilderness. We were never more pleased than when we came to us in the, inside of a little clearing on which was a log cabin where we found a lady who kindly welcomed us to her home and provided us with refreshments which, we, which were gratefully received. As we rested, I talked with the family of Jesus and the beauties of heaven. I left th with them a little book, Experience and Views. Now see, by this time, the publishing work had been going on for some five years. And this was one of the little things they published. So now we come to the publishing ministry, right? How this comes into the whole picture. And this book is called A Sketch of the Christian Experience and Views of Ellen G. White. So now she's just not telling it in person. She has her testimony and experiences written out. It's a 64-page booklet published by James White in 1851. And at the beginning of that booklet, this is what Ellen White says. It's on the CD-ROM. You can look at the booklet. By the request of dear friends, I have consented to give a brief sketch of my experience in views with the hope that it will cheer and strengthen the humble, trusting children of the Lord. So, your own testimony in writing. Okay? Publishing is not always somebody else's testimony in writing. Maybe the Lord wants you to publish your own testimony. Okay? Anyway, that's what she did, and she left them with that little book. Okay? That's something that's vital. And she talked to them about what? Jesus and the beauties of heaven. And here's something to read. And they're on their way. Okay? Can you imagine the picture? Trying to find your way for 40 miles through almost a trackless Michigan woods. And you're saying, why did we get lost? The driver knew the way. And they find this little log cabin out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> 22 years later, Ellen White met this lady at the Michigan camp meeting. The lady said she had never forgotten the words of Mrs. White. Spoken with such fervor that she was charmed. She stated that she had lent that little book to her neighbors as new families had settled around her. Since that time, the Lord had sent ministers to preach the truth to them, and now there was quite a company observing the Sabbath. Now we know why they got lost. God realized there was a heart over there in that little cabin that needed some encouragement, some pictures of heaven, some word pictures, and some written pictures. Okay? What a story. Signs of the Times, October 19, 1876, she published that story. So, can you, can you witness like that? Speak with such a fervor that 22 years later, somebody remembers what you said. What a story. Now we turn to another soul-winning story from Adventist history. He was the second oldest of four sons, the oldest of two who survived to maturity. He was named James after his father, although he went by his middle name. He was an excellent writer, taking more after his mother than his namesake. He did not have his father's executive abilities, very clearly from his history. 
He was James Edson White. He had a track record of poor financial decisions and chronic debt. Know anybody like that? Perhaps you have some friends, relatives, acquaintances that could fit that bill. When he was manager of Pacific Press in Oakland, just across the valley here, not too far, it almost went bankrupt. His mother wrote to him in 1880, you have failed, utterly failed. You will never again have as good a chance to become a man of trust and honor. Okay, what's the need here? Well, utterly failed, and you've lost your best chance at making, a, making something good of, of what you could have done. Okay, that's the need. And sometimes we need to have our need you know, written in front of us. Some people are in denial, right? And here's a mother. She's not writing this to discourage him. She's needing to break through, I think, some denial, apparently, there. And we'll see this as we look at it. She says, it is time you resigned all position there, for your course has proved to others your unfitness to be there. Volume three of her biography, page 133. He resigned in response to her counsel, and he returned for a time to Battle Creek. His mother encouraged him to get out of debt, to develop more caution and economy of character. Okay, there's the counsel. Your need, unfitness, but at the same time what we would call what? Accountability. Accountability. She says, your failures in the past were in consequence of indulging your own ideas and plans just as you are doing now, without moving safely and surely. Sometimes we think we know what's best for us. My own ideas, my own plans. And sometimes we bear the consequences of it. Um, continuing the same biographical uh, reference there. At some point, he left Battle Creek and he moved to Chicago, got a job in the print printing business. After all, that's what his father had done some, and was quite involved in debt. And he wrote, to his mother in one letter, these sad, heartbreaking words. I am not at all religiously inclined. So again, his need, his own ideas and plans as he's following, regardless of what God wants for him, and his lack of any religious inclination. His mother, now in Australia, had a vivid dream of his danger. And she wrote him of the set independent, stubborn will of your own, which has reached even against God. You have not preserved a surrender to God. She had raised him as a little boy, surrendered to, God, surrendered to Jesus. But she said to him, you have not preserved that surrender. You have not preserved that. And the independent, set, stubborn will was there. She says, I cannot save you. God alone can save you. But work while Jesus invites you in harmony with God, mother. So his need, again, as many of us struggle with, was a stubborn will. He had not preserved a surrender. And yet, she held out to him possibilities. God alone can save you, and Jesus invites you. Within two months, he wrote his mother these words, I have surrendered fully and completely and never enjoyed life before as I am enjoying it now. I have no desire for the amusements and pleasures that have made up the sum of my enjoyments before, but have an enjoyment in the meetings with the people of God such as I have never had before. A new conversion experience. A mother's heart that not only led her to write those letters, I'm sure she was praying day and night for this wayward son. 
he began to dream of carrying the Advent message to the blacks in the South, just a few decades after the Civil War, in response to his mother's repeated calls to the church to do this. He was successful in this venture, working in that ministry from 1894 until 1912. He was almost lynched by white people more than once in the South for the work that he was doing among the blacks. Even though in that converted state, she often prayed and wrote him to guide him through his continuing difficulties, often with church leaders. You can imagine what the church leaders would have in their own experience. This man is the son of the messenger. His father was leading the church in its early years, but yet his track record has been at best mixed and spotty. How much do we entrust him with? You know? How much do we, do we actually hold him at arm's length? And the very fact that he's in the South working on the rivers and on the blacks is, I don't know exactly what the dynamics were at the General Conference that led him to choose that field, but it was a needy field, and his mother had called for it. So it wasn't just running away from Battle Creek that led him to do that. But I still, you sort of have to picture yourself where the leaders were in their struggle with him. And so we come to the next story. Leaders in Battle Creek. Two years after his reconversion, Edison was in Battle Creek at the church headquarters, and the General Conference president was O.A. Olson, and fellow administrators at the headquarters were included two men named A.R. Henry and Harmon Lindsay. They were in positions that we would call today CFOs of various church organizations at that time. These two men, A.R. Henry and Harmon Lindsay. Let's listen in on Ellen White's soul-winning counsel to Edson as she instructs him to give what he's been given. That's what soul winning is about, after all. You give what you've been given, right? But you know how to give it to meet the needs of those that you're working with. Here's what she wrote. If you can do so in an unobtrusive way, try to help Brother Olson, GC president, and stay up his hands. He needs sympathy and words of hopefulness and courage. Do our leaders need that? More than we realize. They're human beings, too. But please do not, she says to Edson, do not cast reflection upon the men who have not a living connection with God. So here we have at the General Conference headquarters some men. She just says it. They don't have a living connection with God. And she's telling Edson, do not, do what? Do not cast reflection upon them. You could, you could, you know, say bad things about them, but that would be true. If they don't have any living connection with God, you could say something about their lack of connection, right? She says, don't cast reflection upon them. She says this, if you are considerate, you may do good to A.R. Henry and Harmon Lindsay. Show by your attitude that you hold no bitterness toward them. Whatever their attitude toward you, we can sort of read into that. There must have been something going on there. She says, let it not discourage you or embitter your experience. Hold fast to Jesus. He has helped you, and he will help you every hour. And the implication is to help them. Okay? Here's what she says. Okay, whatever their attitude toward you, no bitterness, right? No bitterness. We can so easily become bitter by the way people treat us. Even though we, we may deserve it, okay? People don't treat us just right. This, this you know, self rises up. Here's what she says, though. But do not be off your guard for one moment. Do not indulge in hasty speech. If possible, we want to do what? Save to save these men, these general conference leaders, who know so little of the Spirit of God. In order to do this, in order to do what? Save 
to save him. While you should not depend upon them as gods, be kind and courteous. Treat them as respectfully as though they had been your best friends. 1888 Materials, page 1463. Do you see it? What an amazing picture. And I believe as we understand this principle of soul winning, as we deal with people who know so little of the Spirit of God, we will learn, as Jesus himself was, to be kind and courteous, to treat them as though they had been our best friends. And I believe that, that little phrase there, as though, is something that we need to grab a hold of, hang on to, explore it. And this dynamic, uh, I believe, is what we need to understand better. It's the dynamic of seeing people not as, and treating them, not as they are, but as they can be. Not as they are, but as they can be. And I submit to you that this is the creative dynamic of faith that works by love, which alone has power to overcome. Galatians 5, verse 6. This is it. And this is how I think Ellen White describes it elsewhere. Let's just zoom out. I'm not going to focus on men at the general conference. I'm not going to focus on Edson. Let's just zoom out to the entire great controversy and see how she describes it. This is a passage, the reference of which I'll give you at the end. Christ the heavenly, the ultimate soul winner, I titled this. Christ the heavenly merchantman seeking goodly pearls saw in lost humanity the pearl of price. In man defiled and ruined by sin, he saw the possibilities of redemption. Hearts that have been the battleground of the conflict with Satan, that have been rescued by the power of love, are more precious to the Redeemer than those who have never fallen. Amazing statement. Amazing statement. Notice what I'm highlighting, though, this dynamic. God looked upon humanity not as vile and worthless. He looked upon it in Christ saw it as it might become through redeeming love. He collected all the riches of the universe and laid them down in order to buy the pearl. Christ Object Lessons, page 118. Did you see the verbs that I highlighted? They're the verbs of seeing, of vision, of looking. And you're not seeing what is, you're seeing what can be. And God's doing this for the whole human race. And so I submit, can we by the leading of the Word and the Spirit, learn to see what God sees. And then convey that vision to others. In other words, we look at someone and we see what they can be that they don't even see themselves. And under God's guidance, we learn to convey that to them. I believe this is what the Bible is talking about in the dynamic of faith, what Ellen White calls the eye of faith. And this is what I believe it means at the core essence of what it means to share your faith. It's not just a doctrine that you're sharing. Of course, that's there. But it's also a vision of what someone can be. The doctrines may help to explain that. Here's how she describes it elsewhere. And I believe, as I've put the title on this slide, this is the faith of Jesus in a dimension that we have yet to fully grasp. This statement, here's faith in God and faith in men. Christ would never have given his life for the human race if he had not faith in the souls for whom he died. You ever read that statement before? Did you know Christ had faith in the souls for whom he died? He knew that a large number would respond to the love he had expressed for humanity. It is not every heart that responds, but every heart may. 
and can, if it will, respond to that love that is without parallel. If every, if every heart may, then God looks at every heart as though it had. And he deals with them in a way to make that possible. He make that possible. Lift him up, page 221. I see this as soul winning faith. It is something that is manifested to all, but it's not coercive. As she just said, not every heart does. But unless every heart has the vision of the possibility, will they even want it? Will they even think it's possible? And who will convey to them that possibility? It may be you who will convey that possibility to them of what they could be. I believe this is what the Bible describes, again, as the faith of Jesus. And just some statements quickly um, before we move on to another story here. The third angel's message is the proclamation of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. The commandments of God have been proclaimed, but the faith of Jesus Christ has not been proclaimed by Seventh-day Adventists as of equal importance, the law and the gospel going how? Hand in hand. Hand in hand. And she said, I cannot find language to express this subject in its fullness. 1888 Materials, page 217. At that point, we had been preaching what? The commandments of God. But the faith of Jesus, we had not really grasped as we should. That's what we need to, to understand better. She repeatedly talks about it. The commandments of God are clearly the law. The faith of Jesus, she equates with what? The gospel. Very plain there. The law and the gospel going hand in hand. Is this theology? Or is it evangelism? Or is it both? both? I think it's both. The words of the angel guide to Ellen White, there is much light yet to shine forth from the law of God and the gospel of righteousness. This message, understood in its true character and proclaimed in the spirit, will lighten the earth with its glory. What message is that? Revelation 18. The last message, the loud cry. The message of the law of God and the gospel of righteousness. Not only the understanding of it in teaching, but the understanding of it in living. And you're conveying that to other people. She says, the, this is the word still of her angel guide. The closing work of the third angel's message will be attended with a power that will send the rays of the Son of Righteousness into all the highways and byways of life. That means where people are, where they live. 1880 Materials, page 166. Another statement along the same line, the message that was given to the people in these meetings, this is a message that was quoted at our devotional this morning, presented in clear lines, not alone the commandments of God, a part of the third angel's message, but the faith of Jesus, which comprehends more than is generally supposed. And it would be well for the third angel's message to be proclaimed in all its parts, for the people need every jot and tittle of it. If we proclaim the commandments of God and leave the other half scarcely touched, the message is marred in our hands. 1880 Materials, page 367. So again, is the faith of Jesus merely a teaching? Or is it this dynamic of how I see people, not as they are, but as they can be, that I treat them in a way that conveys to them God's possibilities for them? Another statement, the soul-saving me soul message. Again, this is what we're focused on in our meetings today. What is the methods of soul winning? The soul-saving message, the third angel's message, is the message to be given to the world. The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus are both important, immensely important, but must, and must be given with equal force and power. The first part of the message has been dwelt upon mostly. The last part, casually. The faith of Jesus is not comprehended. 
Very plain, right? And it's not comprehended. She's very explicit about that. And then she says, this shows you how practical it is. We must talk it. We must live it. We must pray it and educate the people to bring this part of the message into their home life. That's the, that's the closest test of your doctrines. It's not out there preaching to, to the multitudes. It's how you treat people in your home. Okay? The home life. And then she quotes Philippians 2.5. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. 1880 Materials, page 430. We need more books on the faith of Jesus, not just the commandments of God. Maybe we need a book on both of them hand in hand. Okay? How they would go hand in hand. Let us with pen and voice present not only the commandments of God, but the faith of Jesus. This will promote true, real heart piety as nothing else can. 1888 Materials, page 728. Just a sampling of what she was saying in those years as the loud cry was beginning in those early years. Let's turn next to another group. We mentioned the, those that were struggling to grow up, the students. In a chapter entitled, The Suspension of Students, have you ever been in educational administration? <laughs> teaching, trying to figure out what students to keep and what not to keep. The suspension of students. She wrote it as a letter to W.W. W. Prescott when in 1893 he was a president of the Battle Creek College. Ellen White addresses the same dynamic, I'm convinced, in the salvation of souls, but now in the context of our educational work with the principles that extend even more broadly. Let's just let, uh, let her speak here in a few sentences. Let us bear in mind that we are dealing with souls that Christ has purchased with infinite cost to himself. Oh, tell the erring, God loves you. God died for you. Weep over them. Pray with them. Shed tears over them, but do not get angry with them. They are Christ's purchased possession. Let everyone seek a character that will express love in all his actions. It were better not to live than to exist day by day devoid of that love which Christ has revealed in his character and has enjoined upon his children. Said Christ, love one another as I have loved you. We live in a hard, unfeeling, uncharitable world. Satan and his confederacy are applying every art to seduce souls for whom Christ has given his precious life. Everyone who loves God in sincerity and truth will love the souls for whom Christ has died. If we wish to do good, watch this. This is the sentence. This is the punchline. If we wish to do good to souls, our success with these souls will be in proportion to their belief in, our belief in, and appreciation of them. There is a faith in souls. <laughs> They're sharing your faith in them. And she says your success will be in proportion, right? To proportion to that. Respect shown to the struggling human soul is the sure means through Christ of the restoration of the self-respect the man has lost. And then she says, our advancing ideas of what he may become is a help that we cannot ourselves fully appreciate. That, I believe, again, is the eye of faith. As your ideas advance of what a person can become in Christ, and you begin to treat them that way, whether they're a student in school or your neighbor or your own child or your other relatives, your advancing ideas is of help that you cannot fully appreciate. Bind these souls who need all the help it is possible for you to give them close to a loving, sympathizing, pitying heart, overflowing with Christ-like love, and you will save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Had we not better try the love process? 
Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 280. An amazing chapter. I encourage you to read the whole chapter. Whole chapter. And then finally, the story of a man resisting the light of present truth. Again, a bright light from Ellen White's own experience. The case of John Radley, a farmer in Australia. In the words of Ellen White, we have felt great anxiety for him. His wife embraced the truth first, and he came along more slowly. He was very cautious in regard to committing himself. His heart was not inclined to fully accept the faith. But I talked with him, what does she say? As though he was fully with us, presenting before him his responsibilities for his neighbors. I said, you have the light of truth. You have a work to do to enlighten others. You love to read? Study then for time and for eternity. The time which any of us has to work is short. We must act our part in the service of God. I told him what he could do to advance the knowledge of the truth. He assented to it all by a mere response. Do you see it there again? She's conveying what he could be. She's speaking to him as though he was already there. She's conveying to him a picture that he didn't even have for himself at that point. Brother Starr, a fellow worker, was with me. After we left, he said, I'm surprised to hear you talk to him as though he was fully with us. If he, if he himself does not work on the Sabbath, his hired help works. I answered, I have talked to him in just the right way. I presented to him his high obligations to God in point of influence, laying the matter before him as one who should stand in the gap. She's defending her way of talking to him against a man who's questioning her methods of soul winning. He felt himself, Brother Radley, far from deserving the confidence I placed in him. Do you see it there again? This is the faith of Jesus in soul winning. Yet I always talked with him as one who knew and loved the truth, always laying out plans with him whereby he might be a laborer together with God. One night the Lord gave me a message for him, and I rose at midnight and wrote out page after page. I sent the message to him to be read to him, and he said, why does she write such a communication to me? I am not a believer. I do not want to separate from my neighbors. I cannot displease those with whom I have lived for 20 years. His case was again urged upon me, and I said, What more can I do, Lord? He will not receive the light. What can I do? I was directed to do one more thing. Back to the publishing ministry, right? <laughs> To place my books in his hands as a gift. First, notice the order in which the Lord told her to give these books. It may be significant too, I don't know. At least with this case it was. First, steps to Christ. Then, patriarchs and prophets. Then, great controversy. I did this and he read patriarchs and prophets through three times. How many of you read it through that, that many times? His, I have been shown... Let's see, did I... Yes. I have been shown that we became too easily discouraged over the souls that do not seem to take hold at once. But those who minister must not fail nor be discouraged. Christian motives demand us to act with a steady purpose, an undying interest, and ever-increasing importunity. That means you don't give up. Um, for the souls for whom Satan is seeking to destroy. No disappointment, no outward appearance can chill the earnest, yearning energy for the salvation of others. The faith of Jesus works by love. It does not give up. The Holy Spirit's efficacy, she continues, will cooperate with human effort, and that love flows forth upon the soul for whom Christ has died with an inexhaustible source upon which to depend. You'll find you don't have it. You are wanting to give up. You've got given everything that you have, but there's an inexhaustible source. 
And you must say, God, teach me to see that soul as you see them. Teach me what you have in mind for that person. I can't see it. I don't have it in my heart or in my energy to do that. She says, it would be difficult for a mind to continue in resistance to all these efforts. And oh, how happy I am to state that Brother Radley has come out decided, firm, and true. And then she says, and this is the letter that she's writing to the Kelloggs. She says, I have placed this case before you in full in order that you may know the manner in which I have worked. This we have done in many cases with the best results. Volume 1, Manuscript Release, those were pages 146 to 150. So in closing, I want to ask you the question. As a soul winner, have you learned to see after the Spirit, the eye of faith, to see with the Holy Spirit? And I believe this is what 2 Corinthians 5.16 means. For a long time, I never knew what this text meant. It's in the middle of this passage where he says, you know, the love of Christ constrains me, and it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world. But here's this text that says, wherefore henceforth know we, and that verb know is actually translated see also. There's the eye of faith. Know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth know we him no more. Jesus, Paul went through this amazing transformation in how he looked at Jesus Christ. So he went through a transformation in how he looked at every other human being. Not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave him new eyes. And what would happen, I say, what would happen if we all learned to see all persons after the Spirit? Those are lessons from our past that I believe we can learn from. And hopefully you've been able to catch a glimpse of this dynamic that heaven operates on, this gold tried in the fire, this faith that works by love, not only hanging your helpless soul upon God, but receiving from him his view of others and conveying that to them as you interact with them from time to time, from day to day. May that be your experience, and may that be mine. Let's close. Father, we thank you for the opportunity today to review our history, how much there is there for us to learn, how much you still want to teach us. Lord, the work we're told could have been finished long ago. Perhaps we're beginning to see what we've been lacking. Uh, it may not be the, just the simple doctrines. It may be the dynamic of how to see others as you see them. The impetus, the motivation to treat others not as they are, but as they can be. That will save our own souls and save others as well. Your faith will save us. Your faith may be expressed through us, will save others. So guide us in the days ahead. Teach us how to learn at your feet. Make us more efficient soul winners in your work is my prayer. In Christ's name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.